Hi, and welcome to XX Will Travel, a podcast for independent women travelers. I'm Ines Bellina. <laughs> and I am Kathy Pokrovic. <laughs> and the reason that I'm saying my name in such a Spanish inflected accent is because we're going to talk about Peru. My home country. And the reason I'm saying my name in a Spanish-inflected accent is because people who speak Spanish are the only ones who ever say it correctly. <laughs> well, it's very just phonetic, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes, we are finally going to uh, talk about Peru and my hometown of Lima and the city of Cusco. And this is both very exciting and daunting for me because I can't separate my emotions from it. Right. Yeah. It's, it's hard to step back. It is. And I feel like I've been avoiding it for a while, but the time has come because everyone keeps clamoring for tips. And now you have a tourist, i.e. me, mm -hmm. and a native Peruvian, i.e. Ines. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we are here to give you all the perspectives you need. Every It's a comprehensive episode. It is. More bang for your buck. Yeah, so we're just going to cut right to the chase and get to Cusco and Machu Picchu because this is like the number one question I get ever. Kathy, I'm actually going to start with you because Kathy has done something I've never done, which is actually the Inca Trail. <laughs> I've been to Machu Picchu three times, but they've all been, as I like to call it, in the lazy way. Mm -hmm. But Kathy has done it in the way that most tourists, I think, want to do it. So tell me a bit about your experience. Well, I actually did not do the Inca Trail. Oh, okay. My mistake. So, <laughs> no, no, no. Common mistake. So first of all, there are many trails you can use to get to Machu Picchu. The Inca Trail is the most bureaucratic because they're trying to preserve it and you need a permit and they only give 500 permits a day. They've recently reduced the number of permits and summer, guess what, is already sold out. Yeah. You're not going to get a permit. Sorry. <laughs> However, I'm going to save your trip because I know many of you have already bought that plane ticket and now you're panicking after hearing that. Basically, the Inca Trail requires a permit. There are stricter weight restrictions, so you can't carry as much. There are no horses allowed past a certain point on the Inca Trail. So if you have problems and you're not physically fit, you're going to end up walking. And then there are lots of stone steps, lots and lots of stone steps, which are harder on your legs and knees. So that is the, the cons of the Inca Trail. However, there are many, many other ways to get to Machu Picchu. And the one I did is called the Lares Trek. So the Lara's Trek, there's no permit required. You don't need a guide if you're, like, that confident <laughs> in your skills. Yeah, I'm like, I don't know, guys. I know what emergency services are like in Peru, and though they've improved considerably, I'm just going to be uber cautious and tell you, please use a guide. I know. My friend's husband is a badass, and he, like, scales mountains by himself, and he wants to do the... He wants to get to Machu Picchu and not use a guide. And I was like, well... Yeah. Plus, if you something does happen, the advantage of the Lara's Trek is that you see lots of people. Like, you see people who actually live in that area. The disadvantage is they don't speak Spanish. They speak Quechua. Right. Which has nothing to do with Spanish. <laughs> so they're not going to know. They're just going to see you, like, limping in pain. Yeah. <laughs> Look, this is all I'm going to say about that is that every single week... Someone on my Facebook from Peru will pop up sharing a post of some poor parent from the U.S. or Europe desperately seeking their son, because it's almost always a son, that was last seen somewhere in one of these treks and trails, and they have no idea where they are. And I don't think, a lot of the times, I don't think it's anything sketchy, like, oh, they were kidnapped. I honestly think it's just, they probably got hurt, but, like, it's a very desolate area, and Peru has a really rough geography. Yes. And so it's not really something you can do simply because you're a badass. Right. Yeah. Anywho. Right. <laughs> so uh, the Lara's Trek is one of, it goes to like one of the highest points you can get to on the commercial trails. And the weight limit is a little more than the Inca Trail. However, you still have a weight limit because either people or horses are carrying your stuff. And horses are allowed all the way up the Lara's Trek, which is awesome. Because I went with some people who responded very badly to the altitude. And they got to, they were switched. They took turns riding the horse. If that was the Inca Trail, they probably would have had to walk back down to a point where a horse could come get them and then ride back. Which wow. sounds terrible. There are some other trails. One of the other popular ones is called the Salcane Trail, which is a little bit 
more rigorous than the Lares Trek. And there's also, excuse my mispronunciation, the Choke Kirao. Choke Kirao. Yes. yes. You do not need a permit for this trail and only 30 people a day visit it. It is very rigorous. But my advice to you is go now because Peru is building a road and a cable car to get to the top. And they are aiming to increase the use of this trail to 50,000 people a year. Yeah, and Choquequirao is like another huge Incan complex ruin that was kind of like the hipster version of Machu Picchu when I was a teen and really only intrepid people would go. And it slowly increased in popularity. But as Kathy said, this will all change very soon. And it's apparently supposed to be more impressive. I've, yeah. Yeah, I've never been, but... It's definitely on my radar, although I will probably wait for the cable car, because I am that kind of person. Excellent. Yeah. As long as you know yourself. Like, it's true. <laughs> the best way to see Machu Picchu as a tourist, we, as Inez and I discussed before this, is that there's a luxury lodge right at the gate of Machu Picchu, which allows you unfettered access. Yeah. You can visit as many times a day as you want. Yeah. I think it's still super expensive, though. Like, I don't even know how much to price per night is but it's something that was definitely not accessible but you're tired and you're gross and you like walk past this luxury lodge and you're like what am i doing with my life yeah well in your trek that you did like how did you guys get from your trek to machu picchu okay so it was a four-day trek and we met in cusco so we met in cusco we went to the tour office we had a little orientation and they picked us up and then they this had um sort of a, not community service, kind of like a, a human service aspect, mm -hmm. where they drove us to the hot springs. Uh, Aguas Calientes? Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. Or... There's another one. Okay. It's, it's name I can't remember. But like an actual hot spring, you mean? Yes. Okay. So they drove us to these hot springs, and on the way, we stopped at a market, and we bought groceries, and we distributed those to the people along the trail, who in turn would show us their home. So they're making a living off the tourists, which is good. So from the hot springs, we started our trek, and it was, um, I think, yes, four days and three nights, and some people would call it roughing it. It was not roughing it, but it was not glamping. Mm -hmm. Like, the, we slept in tents. When we got to our campsite, the tents had already been set up for us, and they had, it was like tents, they rolled out the sleeping bags, and they left a bowl of hot water so we could wash up. So it wasn't like... Maybe that's roughing it for some people. I don't know. For me, I was like, meh, this is better than I could do by myself. Right. <laughs> um, and there was a food tent, like a cooking tent, and the food was amazing. Like the stuff that they can do with minimal facilities is awesome. And there were porta-potties at some of the sites. That was going to be my follow-up question. Tell me about the bathroom situation. <laughs> I will say that altitude sickness affects people differently, mm -hmm. some of them digestively. <laughs> so the porta-potties were a hit or miss. Okay. <laughs> um, I went in early May, which is right when the tourist season is just beginning. It was a good time to go, but that's also when rainy season is just ending. Yeah. So it was cheaper, and there were fewer people on the trail, but you, we did have to have a rain gear. Yeah. So I have some, some tips. Uh, tips for? For Machu Picchu. Oh, for Machu Picchu. Yeah. yeah. All right. So number one is plan in advance. Like I said, it's February now. All the permits are sold out for the summer, for the Inca Trail. You mm -hmm. could probably still trek someplace else. Number two, get there early to acclimate because altitude sickness is real and it's going to take you... A lot of people... We did not stop in Lima. We went straight to Cusco. A lot of people stop in Lima because it's a lower altitude than Cusco mm -hmm. and they spend a day and kind of work their way up to Cusco. We did not. And it was very hard to breathe yeah. at some points. <laughs> it's pretty intense. Yeah. yeah. I remember I rolled over in bed and my roommate was like, what did you just do? Because apparently I went... <gasps> <laughs> but I, I have no memory of it <laughs> oh my god 
Yeah. I did it on a bus, too. And I was like, I think I was squishing one of my lungs and it just inflated. Yeah. Man, who knows what effect you had, like, that had on you. Like, maybe all memories of first grade are now gone. I know. <laughs> because oxygen was literally being cut off from my brain. Yeah. And the, our guide was, like, running and, and trotting ahead of us. And he'd, like, come back and then run a, a mile ahead. He'd be like, that's because I'm Inca and, and we are scientifically proven to have more red blood cells than you. And I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah, I will say uh, for altitude sickness, coca leaf tea is like a lifesaver. Yes. Just keep drinking that, that sweet, sweet tea. And it hydrates you too. So yeah. that's because um, altitude sickness is worse when you are not hydrated, which is often the case when you get off a long flight. The next tip I have is to follow the packing list that is given to you if you are on a guided tour. If they put it on the list, it is there for a reason. Case in point, waterproof gloves. My friend did not get them. She decided to get some wool gloves at a local market. Guess what? Wool gets wet, and up there, stuff never dries. (laughs) So get some waterproof gloves, or like just follow their list to the letter. Leave the tags on, return it if you don't use it. Number four, train. I ran the stairs in my office building and dodged security cameras because technically that's a liability. And then I did a lot of time on the stair stepper and I felt like I was still exhausted when I got there. But compared to other people who hadn't put in the effort, like I was in pretty good shape. Leave your luggage at the hotel, like in Cusco, because this is such a common thing. A lot of peop- of hotels will let you leave your luggage there, your giant luggage, and just take what you need mm-hmm. and come back and get it. The next tip is to plan how much time you want to spend at the site. I personally did not get to spend as much time as I wanted, and I was really bummed because I'm probably Aww. not going to go there again. And part of it was because my friend disappeared and we were waiting for her and she didn't tell us she was already done. So how long were you there? An hour or two. Oh, really? And then we did um, Huayna Picchu. Yeah. Which is a very scary, they call it the Stairs of Death. Would not have done that. <laughs> I'm and, just putting that out there. And you, you hike and it's not America or Europe, so there are no railings. There are no signs. It is very slippery. We watched many people hop around like mountain goats, and we were like sliding downstairs on our butt on purpose because we didn't want to die. There's climbing, like you get, you climb a ladder, and there's a hole at the top, and it's like you get to the top, and there's sheer rock. Oh, man. And at one point, I was like, I can't do this. But we did eventually get to the top, but it was super scary. If you have any fear of heights, this is not the place to conquer it. (laughs) Conquer it someplace with a railing where you're going to feel like at least you have some sort of safety. I'm actually really impressed. Like, that was super brave of you because I think every year there's some tourist that dies from Huayna Picchu. And as someone who is not super confident, one, in my athletic skills... Two, in my ability to not panic under stress. Like, every single time Huayna Picchu has been proposed to me, I'm just like, I'm going to journal in Machu Picchu while right. you guys risk death. Right. <laughs> if you if you Google stairs of death, there are people who have filmed themselves going up that, up Huayna Picchu on YouTube, and it is real scary. The views are gorgeous. Yeah. The views are amazing. But, you know, life is amazing, too. And if you value <laughs> yours and you're not super confident... Maybe just walk around a little more. Right. <laughs> um, finally, a lot of tours offer you'll trek for a couple days, and then you'll at sunrise you'll get up and you'll trek through the sun gate. And it sounds amazing. It sounds so awesome. But the people who I've spoken to, because you're up at 4 in the morning after probably not getting too great of sleep because you've been camping and, and hiking all day, everyone I've talked to was like, I was so tired. I was so dirty. It was the last place I wanted to be. So think about how you will feel at four in the morning after three days of hiking. Yeah. We hiked to Aguas Calientes, which is the town nearest to Machu Picchu. We stayed in a hotel. We were able to take showers. We, were, we slept in beds. And then um, we took the bus up to the actual site, which is like, I was really glad we did that. Yeah. Because... Whatever, you want to be in good shape and not gross and and tired when you're seeing this. Because you're probably never going to go back, unless you're Inez. Right. <laughs> and you've been several times. Yeah. Um, I'm always wary a bit of those, like, sunrise or sunset kind of tours. Because even though I understand that the light is probably amazing, I'm really worried about the amount of people there. Because then maybe it's not as beautiful as it could be, simply because... 
you're like with 500 other people watching it all. Right. It's it's yeah. like uh, at uh, Cambodia, at Angkor Wat. Yeah. Like sunrise is a big thing, and I'm glad I did it. But at the same time, there was a lot of people like yeah. jockeying for position too. You know, just keep that in mind, especially if you're thinking you're going to do it for the gram. Yeah, like I don't think you're going to get that pristine Machu Picchu is completely empty from nope. shot. I don't think so either. The lazy way of going to Machu Picchu, as I like to call it, has... Honestly, it took me a very long time to figure out how to do this now in this day and age. Because I've been there three times, but this was either before the Peruvian tourism boom or right as the Peruvian tourism boom was starting, which means that I could kind of wing it. So the first time I went was with an organized tour during my, during my high school senior trip. So that was all taken care of. You know, basically, we went in the fancy tourist train to Aguascalientes. From there, we took the bus up to Machu Picchu. Boom, there it's done. The second time I did it was with friends, Peruvian friends, when I was 19 years old. And this time around, we took the commuter train that only Peruvians can go on. And it's quite the experience because you're there with all the farmers, which means that there's like chickens and goats and produce. <laughs> yeah, lined oh. everywhere and sometimes like group of school kids. So that is like the true Peruvian experience, but you really only get to do it if you're from Peru. And from there, it was the same thing, you know, train to Aguascalientes, took the bus and bought the tickets right there at the gate. And the last time I did it was with my ex. So we took the fancy tourist uh, train and pretty much the same thing. It's always been the same route to Aguascalientes. And again, it was still at a time when we could buy tickets like right at the gate. You know, over the years, this has gotten more and more increasingly difficult, like even if you just want to go there for a day. And it seemed like everyone in Peru that I talked to had different opinions of how you could get it done. <laughs> there was a lot of like, oh, I think there's a booth somewhere in Plaza de Armas, you know, where it's like, I have a guy. The amount of Peruvians telling me I have a guy, I'm like, excellent. And then I would ask him, well, give me the guy's website. And they're like, he only works by phone. And I'm like, dudes. We're 2018. This guy should have a website. And anyways, this is my own thing. But I did have a friend, Carissa, <laughs> who went to Peru recently. And she actually did not want to do any of the trekkings or the trails because she was there for a limited amount of time. She's not super sporty. And she's like, I just want to go there for a day. So I asked her how she did it. And her response was, I paid all the money. <laughs> all the money. <laughs> Basically, she had her hotel set it up. Now, the reason she found this costly was because I think it cost $385 per person, which I honestly can't tell you if that's super expensive or not, because I no longer have any frame of reference. I think that is pretty expensive. But it for, sounds expensive. For a day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think we paid like 500 600 for like four. Yeah. And I have heard, at least with tours, there are tours now that are like... It seems like the average is 700 to 1000 but then again, you're on a tour, like you're on a multi-day tour. I can see that being a reasonable cost. So the hotel basically arranged for a guy to pick them up there, drive them to the town of Ollantaytambo, where they took the train to Aguascalientes, from Ooh. Aguascalientes, the bus, and then they got into Machu Picchu. And she told me that like the hotel made it so that the hotel bought all the tickets, so they gave her this huge folder, and that's where all the tickets were. And that is where I started. What is the first town? Oh, Ollantaytambo. Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. I asked her if she had a sense if she could have done this cheaper, like had she really wanted to. And she told me that probably, but we would have taken going to a lot of different agencies. And at the end of the day, this is my theory, just from the responses I've gotten from like going on different websites, including the official Peruvian one. And it seems just like that the government is trying to make it so difficult to kind of either limit the amount of people in Machu Picchu in a day and also maybe spur like economy. Because even going on the official website does not make it any clearer to me how you can get to Machu Picchu just by buying tickets. I know there's, t there's talk, yeah. there's rumors <laughs> that you can walk around like when you're there in Cusco to the tourist agencies, like the trekking companies, yeah. and see if there have been any cancellations mm. and possibly take someone's spot. But, 
But it's like the risk you take. And if you're in Cusco, you probably don't want to miss Machu Picchu. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it seems basically that everything is being set up so that you either have to have the hotel do it or have to have a travel agency slash guy take care of it. So as always, do your research and I think plan in advance. Like, I don't think there's any way around it. You can't really do the super spontaneous, let's go to Machu Picchu. No. <laughs> I'm like the day that your heart fancies anymore. <laughs> I feel really lucky that I got to go back when the only other travelers were maybe other Latin Americans and like the rogue hippie Australian. Yeah. Or, or Israeli. Or, oh God. Or, it, okay. <laughs> if you are into Israelis, no better place than Cusco to find them because that's pretty much where they go to party after they're done with military service. I say this with love. They are a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> and they're everywhere. And they're everywhere. I'm going to say those, that army training does great things for the physique. I'm sure. Get them while they're fresh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Kathy, w did you do other things in Cusco or were you just really there for the trek? We were there for the trek. We went shopping in the big market mm -hmm. in Cusco. Um, I got all my Christmas shopping done, Ooh. and everybody loved their gifts. So we went shopping, we walked around, we went to the Plaza de Armas. We were just exhausted. Like, yeah. the altitude sickness kicked our butts. So we didn't do anything in Cusco, but afterwards, when we were feeling like badasses, <laughs> we did take a bus to Puno, oh. which is a six-hour bus ride from Cusco, and it's where Lake, it's the um, Peruvian side of Lake Titicaca. Mm -hmm. And so we went to these the Uros Islands, which are a group of islands made out of bricks that are made out of reeds. They string these bricks together and people live on the islands. And it's, it is touristy, like you can tell that it's pretty touristy, but what a, whatever. What yeah, but it's also unique. Like, where yeah. else are you going to see these floating islands? Exactly. Yeah. So that was fun. Sometimes these islands, like, they're kind of anchored down, but sometimes they blow over to the Bolivian side, which I guess has been a little controversial, because where <laughs> are they? <laughs> Who do they belong to? And it was it was awesome. We went out on a, a boat, a canoe made of reeds, and we went to this town called Tequile. So first we stopped at the Uros Islands, and we hung out on the islands and it's like you're walking on mushy land mm -hmm. so it's a very strange feeling and then we took our boat to tequila which is famous for men who knit oh well look at that have you have you heard of this no <laughs> okay but on the other hand i'm just like i'm not surprised <laughs> i have like a theory that peru is really a matriarchy so yeah <laughs> so there are these men this island is famous for the men who knit, and you see men, and they're walking around just knitting away as they're walking, and they are selling their handicrafts. There's a market there, and they start knitting when they're boys, like mm -hmm. nine years old. Their knitting is super intricate, and they practice knitting, and when they can knit a hat with a weave so tight that it holds water... Then they can get married. Sounds like a winning plan to I me. I know. <laughs> get yourself a man <laughs> that can knit. I'm a knitter. I can tell you that's a pretty darn tight weave. Yeah. Like you found a keeper. Yeah. If you can find a man who can do that. So that it was interesting. Like and we had really good food. And in Puno we had ceviche with like the big Peruvian corn and mm. seafood and the guys at our hotel we were like where do we eat like where do you eat and they recommended Maria ceviche y mas <laughs> and we were the only like maybe it was the time of year maybe it does get really touristy I don't know but we were the only like gringos in the building and it was delicious and they do have picture menus which makes me suspect that it can get pretty touristy. <laughs> but there's nothing like ceviche and rice and a cold beer after a day of touristing. The favorite picture I have of my dad is him on kind of, what is it, like a social work trip to the floating islands in Puno. He like went there while he was studying to become a diplomat. Like they, every year they had to go and kind of do like uh, humanitarian work in different areas of Peru. And... He's basically dressed as like a late 1960s Latin American revolutionary stereotype, okay? <laughs> he has like flared bell bottoms, a little like wool sweater, a beret, and long hair. <laughs> he honestly looks like the Che Guevara, which I find hilarious because my dad has always been an anti-communist. Like he is very, very much about the free market. <laughs> 
what? If you look at him, like, you, you, and, you know, if you look at him and I told you, like, this man fought for Cuba, you would believe it. <laughs> but that is my favorite photograph of my dad of all time. I've never been to Puno, but it is very, like, a very typical kind of pairing, like Cusco and Puno, and everyone I've heard who's been there thinks it's, like, mind-blowing. It is, it's very cool. You don't need longer than a day. But as for Cusco, if you want to make more of your stay besides Machu Picchu, like, Cusco is honestly one of my favorite cities in the world, and... One other thing I think that is important to realize is that the seat of the Incan Empire wasn't Machu Picchu. That was actually just a summer home. It was Cusco. It's like the longest running, continuously inhabited city in the Western Hemisphere. Wow. Yeah. What the Spaniards did when they came to Cusco was basically they saw all these different temples and like government buildings and just constructed over them to kind of claim their power. But it makes it for really interesting historical architecture because if you go to the cathedral, it's a beautiful, stunning representation of 16th century viceroyal art. I won't get into that. But it was also like built on the same area as Temple of the Sun. So it has some of that, you know, and kind of see this all over. Like you see, you can go see Coricancha, which also used to be the seat of the emperor. You can go see like the Santo Domingo convent also has a mix of Spanish architecture with Incan architecture. So you can like totally geek out on all of those connections. And like the Plaza de Armas, as Kathy mentioned, is fun. I love the San Blas neighborhood in Cusco because it's super artsy-fartsy. That's kind of where you get all the art galleries and the different very bougie, like artisanal type of dresses and jewelries and things like that. And there's a whole host of different ruins outside of Cusco, too, that you can take like on a day tour, like Sacsayhuaman, which was one of the Incan fortresses. There's also uh, Tambo Machay and Genko. And a lot, like one of the really um, popular bus tours is also just a bus tour of like the Sacred Valley yes, of the Incas. we did it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there you, you, go. S- you see the Mara's salt pans, which yeah. are like, if you want to talk artisanal and organic. I know. <laughs> <laughs> people pluck the salt from the earth and sell it to you, which was really cool. Just like I'd never seen a salt pan before. Yeah. And we went to Moray, which are terraced ruins. Ooh. So it's. I don't even know how to explain it. You're standing in a big circle, and you... Is it up? Do you climb? You climb up. Yeah. And they're, like, concentric circles. Yes. And they think it was for agriculture, like... And every level is a different temperature, mm-hmm. depending on how high you are or how low you are. And so they they think that that was how they tested, like... Well, where does this corn grow best? Like this temperature or this temperature higher up? And yeah. it's it's really cool to run around and play just because it's such a unique landscape. It really is. And when we went on our senior high school trip, like we just took a bus tour of Sacred Valley of the Incas and kind of stopped in a bunch of ruins. We didn't do that one, but we did get to see Las Terrazas, which are, you'll see that the mountains, they've like kind of carved in like different terraces. And that was supposed to be also agricultural where they would grow different produce and different plants depending on the terrace like it was a very sophisticated civilization yeah they knew what the hell they were doing and then the spaniards came and they tried to implement their own agricultural techniques which other than the coast kind of ended up failing in the mountains and it's like now starting once again to come back to the traditional methods because like these people had been doing it for millennia and they knew what they were doing guess what it's not spain right (laughs) you can't use the same stuff (laughs) just can't do it the incan civilization is just fascinating what was the one on the 52 places the new york times list oh quail up mm-hmm. but that is um up north okay up north of peru and believe me i will get into all the other places you should visit in peru at the end of the episode <laughs> oh but in terms of track just one last thing to wrap up kind of things Ooh, you can see in cusco it's come to my attention that going to the rainbow mountain has become all the rage I don't exactly know what that entails. There's a mountain in the Andes near Cusco that looks like a rainbow because it's a different colors. The scales are different colors. And it's become really trendy to go and do hikes around there. I don't know how long they are. I don't know exactly what it entails, but something to look into. Because it's that new. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's that new, but I'm also sure it must like be very Instagram. I think Kathy mentioned what to pack a bit and i think it's important to talk about weather considerations oh yes yeah 
Because it's up in the mountains, so as Kathy mentioned, there's like a divide between rainy season and dry season, and that's kind of what's going to determine more what the temperature is going to be like than any sort of month. And because it's so high up, like it can go to extremes. Like it can be really hot during the day, but then super cold at night. Layers. Yes. <laughs> layers, layers, layers. And in terms of restaurant and food recommendations. I was so cracked out on altitude that I don't remember. <laughs> I know that everybody's like, try the guinea pig. I did not try the guinea pig. I did try the Loma Saltado. Lomo Saltado with with um, alpaca meat. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, with <laughs> alpaca meat. So here's the thing on guinea pig. I almost want to say it's what tourists eat. Because who's going to eat a guinea pig? <laughs> well, it used to be the ceremonial thing in the Andes. Like, it was something that you would bring out to special occasions, and that's kind of where the guinea pig would come out. But it's not something that, like, people in Cusco would eat on a daily basis. And it was not something that the coastal region really had as a sort of daily dish. And since me being from Lima, I had never had guinea pig in my life until I was an adult. As with anything, it tastes like chicken. No, just... <laughs> I mean, it kind of tastes a little bit like pork, depending on how it's made, honestly. I don't, didn't go nuts for it. If you want to, like, do it to say, like, to eat it just so you can say you did, that's fine. But it's not, it wouldn't be my number one recommendation of Peruvian food. It's not like you have to do this or else you haven't experienced Peru. No, that's ceviche. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for many, it is ceviche. <laughs> I am partial to Lomo Saltado. Yes. <laughs> that is my number one obsession. <laughs> but in terms of food recommendations in Cusco, one of my favorite places is Chicholina, which is an Italian-Peruvian restaurant. It's really, really nice pasta. People go crazy for chicha, which is kind of Gaston Acurio's like big outpost in Cusco. You can get really good like fruit juices in the market, in the central market. What about the restaurant that's in a museum in oh, Cusco? Crap, that restaurant in the museum is freaking amazing. Yeah, my yeah. friends didn't want to go. Why? <laughs> like long pause. Because sad face. Because Why? Some people things like that are not as important as to others. Oh man, no. That I can't even remember the name of that, but I went to it and it was really, really, really good. Food in Cusco has improved immensely since the first time I went there. It honestly used to be like a backwater, but now with the tourist boom, it's gone way, way up. Yeah, that's Cusco. That is Cusco. And I'm looking up the name to that restaurant right now. I know. I mean, and I probably have more recommendations that I can look up, but those are the ones that I really enjoyed. Also, big party town. So just go to Plaza de Armas bars and get drunk. <laughs> Which will only take really one or two beers because the altitude will mess with you. <laughs> is it is it Map Cafe? Yes, yes. Map Cafe. Uh -huh. Yes. I just said Mop. Mop, <laughs> mop Cafe? <laughs> Yeah, so that one's really good. Let's go to Lima. Oh, Lima. Oh, Lima. So, Inez. Yes. Lima <laughs> has not had the best reputation over the last couple of, well, over the last couple of years, it's like, boom. Yeah. But like before, what, what was the nickname of Lima? Oh, Lima la horrible. Lima the horrible. By the way, this was a nickname that uh, a Peruvian author gave Lima back in 1924. <laughs> Sebastián Salazar Bondi. He wrote a whole novel called Lima la Horrible. So it took basically a century <laughs> yeah. to shake this reputation. So why should people go to Lima la Horrible? I know. So I will say that it seems the reputation has been turning. Because lately I've actually had people tell me they want to go to Lima or they're excited to go or they will actually go and tell me that they loved it. Like some people I've even heard say I liked Lima better than Cusco, which I think a decade ago was completely like incomprehensible. So Lima, it's chaotic, it's big, it has about 10 million people, it's a huge sprawl. There was no real urban planning that went into it in the past 50 years, so it's not technically beautiful. Let's put it that way. Like in ways that other cities can be beautiful, like Buenos Aires, for example. On the other hand, it is exciting. It has the best food and drink scene of Latin America. And I include Mexico in that, even Ooh. though I've never been there. But whatever. Wow. I'll stick by it. Bold claim. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bold claim. I think now that it's become more cosmopolitan and also has a larger presence of foreigners it's become better and i don't mean foreigners in terms of tourists right although that like helps right in terms of economy and all that kind of stuff 
But I think for a while, Lima, especially like right before the 2000s, coming from like the Fujimori dictatorship and from the Shining Path era, you wouldn't really find people who would like move to Lima other than other Peruvians, right? But now we, because of multinational corporations, which give or take can be evil, can be good or whatever it is, you do at least have like a big population of expats there from all over the world. And because of certain things that have been going on in Spain and Latin America, we're starting to get a lot of immigrant communities from places like Venezuela, Spain, weirdly enough, uh, Argentina, and so on, which I think actually made everything much more dynamic. Like all of us, you know, like they would just bring in new ideas, which meant that Peruvians were like, ah, crap, we have to compete, you know, and it made the city more exciting. Which is is the same when any immigrant community comes to a city. Yeah, Yeah. I was gonna say, I think it's like a total example of why I am very pro-immigrant, even when it comes to my own country, guys. I think it's great that we have these like different international communities. On the other hand, you know, the economic stability also meant that Peruvians who had wackier dreams could finally do them. Because before it's like, you really did not have the capital or the possibility to, I don't know, have an artsy cafe because the, like, the country was just too screwed up at the moment to sustain that. Like no one had the money to patronize you. You know, there were curfews going on. Uh, so I think that also had a big a big part as to why now Lima is actually fun. And I think that's pretty much it. Like Lima might not be pretty, but it's fun and you eat well and you have a good time. And I think it's an interesting view of seeing a city that's like up and coming. So that's why you should go. <laughs> so eating eating and drinking is fun. It is. <laughs> Where might one find good food and drink while in Lima? Everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> But I've written about this on the blog a couple of times, like on xxwilltravel.com. So you're more than welcome to like go there and see some of those. But I'm just going to throw out a few a few names to begin with. Uh, so you have the whole Gaston Acurio empire. Gaston Acurio was our first like celebrity chef. He became an international sensation when his flagship restaurant, Astrid and Gaston, was named like one of the top like 15 restaurants in the world. And ever since then, he hasn't stopped. But he was like the first one to put Peruvian food on the map in an international sense. I'm sure you can go to like gastonacurio.com and go and see like his list of restaurants because they run the gamut from like super, super fancy to very, very chill and, you know, kind of neighborhood type restaurant. The last time I went to Peru, I tried Barra Chalaca, which is this like cevicheria like his new ceviche place and it's tiny it's like in this tiny little hole in the wall it has maybe 20 tables and the food was really good i'm gonna give a shout out to my dad's friend's restaurant the oblomos restaurant (laughs) (laughs) el pesamigo and this isn't shameless plugging it's a seafood restaurant in miraflores and it's so good and it's been around what maybe like 20 or 30 years at this point Yeah, like for most of my life, and it's still going strong, and it's just good for great, solid seafood, traditional, like, Peruvian food. There is, you know, the big wigs, there's Maido, which is the sushi, the sushi restaurant that was also listed in, like, the 50, in the the Pellegrino list, but you can get really fantastic sushi, like, everywhere in Lima. Yes, there was a huge Japanese influx. Like, Japanese were, like, there are lots of immigrants now, but, like, were were Japanese, like, the first people, do you think? Yeah, I mean, yeah, in terms of, like, big immigrant communities in Peru, other than, let's say, like, the Spaniards, and other than, obviously, like, the Africans, which were, like, brought... It was the Japanese, the Chinese, and the Italians. Yeah, because the Japanese were in Brazil. Like, they, Japanese and Brazilians have been going back and forth for centuries because Catholicism! (laughs) And the word for bread in Japanese is actually pan. Oh, wow. Because that's what they brought them, bread. And so, I don't know, did they spill over from Brazil? Is What do you think? So it's not a spillover from Brazil, at least as far as I know, but it was, I mean, it's kind of sketchy in the same way that Asian immigration in the States was sketchy. Like at some point there was just a program of like indentured servitude going on, you know, but from there it grew. There was a lot of immigration to post-war, so post-war Japan, but like 
But the Japanese Peruvian community in Peru was big enough before World War II that we actually had internment camps. Wow. Yeah, and it's like one of those like really little known dirty secrets that I only found out about last year because it's just something that's not taught in school and it's not something that is really talked about or in the collective history, you know, in the collective memory of our history, but it somehow started coming up with everything that Trump was going on and like a couple of like Peruvian historians and journalists like started mentioning it and I asked my dad about it and he's just like yeah no it was terrible it was like a big stain obviously on our national pride and the reason it happened was because Roosevelt was the president World War II yeah he basically told all the allies with big Japanese communities in their countries that if they were real allies of the states they needed to do this shush yeah that's crazy isn't that crazy like my mind was blown when I heard about this wow Uh uh-huh and then there's a whole other thing because one of my mom's uncles is a Je- or was a Japanese Peruvian. I think he passed away, so he actually like had to end up like going and hiding so he wouldn't be put in an internment camp. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The dark side. <laughs> the dark side of Peru. Right. <laughs> um, oh man. Yeah. You yeah. can find um, Peruvian and Brazilian communities all over Japan too. Yeah. And I one of my haziest, most fun conversations I've ever had in a bar. <laughs> with this guy who's half Japanese and half Peruvian and I was very drunk and we spoke what sounded to me the perfect blend of Japanese Spanish yeah and I was like I don't know what is going on here and he's like I understand you perfectly right and I was like okay so anyways that was a nice little segue but back to food (laughs) sorry I just like I think find it interesting like how you can find amazing sushi in Peru and Brazil and like that's why we even have a term for it like we call it like comida Nikkei like Nikkei food you know like that Japanese Peruvian food or the Japanese influence in our own Peruvian food which you can also find there's also chifas which is Chinese Peruvian food, which is slightly different from kind of the Chinese food you can find everywhere else. God damn it. I always get like a, what is it called? A lady boner. A lady boner for it. And it's really hard. It's really hard to get my lady boner off because it's not the same as just Chinese food. Like I need like chifa, you know? And then a couple of my favorite spots for sandwiches is San Antonio. I tried the butifarra, which is a very typical Peruvian sandwich. If you want fast food, I highly recommend Pardo's Chicken, which is Peruvian rotisserie chicken, also dubbed chicken on crack. (laughs) Lots of Pisco bars. Man, I should have written them all down because now they're all like, ah. But yeah, go, go to the Pisco bars in Peru. And to try all of them. Yeah, man. Maybe I'll just put up a list at some yeah. point. <laughs> yeah. So, yes. Go for the food and bar scene. I tell people that are even, like, hesitant to go to Lima. I'm just like, well, at least just go for, like, two or three days and eat a drink. Like, if you don't want to see sights, cool. Go to the beach. Go to the beach. Yeah. There's a there's a beach right there. <laughs> so, we've cut... Well, we, we dipped our toes into the food and drink scene. Yeah. What are some things that are... That people should see and try to do in Lima? Okay, so the first is El Centro Histórico Histórico de Lima, or downtown Lima, where you will get to see lots of beautiful colonial buildings, including we also have a Plaza de Armas in, in Lima, like in most cities in Latin America. That's what the Spaniards would do. They would make a little plaza and all around it they would build like the main main buildings of government power uh so you can see the cathedral there which is also stunning there is a really fun uh, museum of the holy inquisition whoa yeah which i highly recommend there's also the catacombs um which are super interesting so mostly like for lima in terms of your history buff you'll get a huge dose of like the viceroyal history because we were the most important seat of Spanish power in South America. It was all centralized in Lima, and then Lima would rule kind of all the other colonies. And it was the same thing, like Mexico City like had the same deal, but just with Central America. So we were like the Mexico City of South America. So lots of that. Then most people will stay in either Miraflores or Barranco. Miraflores is kind of like the hub of restaurants and shopping centers and things like that. There's a huge park in it called Parque Kennedy. And there you can hop on the Mirabus, which is one of those kind of like bus tours that basically just take you around like San Isidro, Lima, and Barranco and show you like what's what. And I think it's a good way to kind of get situated in the city, you know, and later you can like return to those places if you want to see more. It's Parque Kennedy named after 
John F. Kennedy? It is. It is. I can't remember. I think it was because he went to visit Lima. And they're like, in his honor, they named it. So, yep. It's because of John F. Kennedy. That guy's everywhere. Everywhere. People really like to stroll down El Malecón, which is kind of a series of parks overlooking the Pacific Ocean, right on the edge of the cliffs of Lima. Like, Lima's built on a cliff, uh, so it can make for very dramatic moments. And it's pretty. It's peaceful. And then Barranco, I love Barranco. is kind of the bohemian hipster center of Lima and always has been. And they're actually one of the few neighborhoods that has preserved like the old colonial architecture, turn, turn of the century kind of 1920s architecture there, which makes it very picturesque. And there, okay, so recommendation with a couple of caveats. I realize that Mario Testino has recently been <laughs> accused of sexual harassment. Like everybody. Like everyone else. Whatever your leadings are as to how to protest that, take this with a grain of salt. But Mario Testino is from Peru, and he has a whole museum dedicated to his art, which actually was very beautiful. <laughs> so I'm almost like... And, and is. Is. It is very beautiful. Like His photographs are stunning, and there's a whole salon dedicated to Princess Diana, because he was the last photographer to take a photo shoot of her before she passed away. And to be fair, the museum also holds different exhibits of different artists. So if you really don't want to support Mario Testino, I guess you could always try to support those. I think in terms of things to see and do, there are a couple of ruins in the city. Uh, La Huaca Pukiana is probably the biggest one. You can check that out. It will take you like one hour at most. So you want to stay in Miraflores and Barranco? For the most part, uh, some people choose to stay in downtown Lima, and I'm not necessarily against it, but just know that it usually dies at night and it can get a little sketchy, which is why I tend to recommend either Barranco, Miraflores, or San Isidro. There's a really healthy Airbnb kind of situation going on there too, if that's what you prefer. You know, in case you don't want to do hotels or you don't want to do hostels, that's a pretty popular option. Yes. All useful information. Yeah. But this next question intrigues me the most because <laughs> I'm looking at the notes and it just says the taxi question. <laughs> Here's the thing. I keep forgetting that people tend to live, at least in the States, the idea that a taxi might be dangerous is not really something that most people think about. <laughs> But when you live in Latin America, it's pretty much the first thing you learn in terms of street smarts. Taxis off the street are freaking dangerous. And the ones in Lima for a very long time were used a lot to like, to, you know, to assault people, to steal from them, sometimes to kidnap them. And what made things worse was that they weren't really regulated too much by city hall in any way. So it's not like you had a lot of legal recourses. You usually had to negotiate how much you had to pay. So unless you were a local and knew kind of what the going rate was, you could really easily get scammed. And a lot of times you would have to tell the taxi driver how to get there. So if you also didn't know where you were going, it would make for a very difficult experience, even if you weren't like, let's say, in imminent danger. So I always tell people to visit Lima. Do not take a taxi off the street. Just don't do it. If you're in a hotel or a hostel, they'll usually have the number of a good taxi company or like a guy that they trust. And in this case, you can trust their guy because it, it wouldn't be worth it to them to send someone sketchy. You right. know, that reflects badly on them. That's what they say in Mexico City, too. Yeah. It's like to walk up to a hotel and take a taxi from there. Yeah. And on the other hand, though, like Uber is now in Lima and it's pretty widespread. And I think a lot of other ride sharing services have also popped up. And I think the reason why those are seen as a safer option as one you have the gps so if the guy all of a sudden starts taking another direction you you know you can like do something about that i think too it's just like the idea i think they're more heavily vetted which i know is the opposite of what goes on in the states right like here anyone with a pulse can be an uber driver right fax me your driver's license right and you're driving but I'm getting the feeling that in Latin America, or at least in Peru, 
because they want, they knew they were going into a market that was way more suspicious, they ended up highly vetting the people that would drive for them. And those Uber drivers, like, are fancy. Like, they'll show up in a freaking suit and tie, offering you mints and bottles of water. Wow. So it's, like, a very different experience. <laughs> and I think there's others that have also come up. So you can, again, you might want to ask, like, a hotel, a place you're staying, like, is there an app you recommend? Good. So, yeah. Good advice. The taxi question. The taxi question. Answer. Yeah. <laughs> so, any more comments about Lima? Thing. Besides the fact that it's the best city. <laughs> <laughs> and you should all go there. <laughs> well, I mean, my love for it has grown the longer I don't live in it, which I think says something. One, that probably if I live there, I would be tired of it, like a lot of people are when they live anywhere. And it's also my hometown, so it's a complicated feeling, right? We all, like, grow up wanting to escape it. But on the other hand, every time I go, it changes, and it usually changes for the better. The traffic is horrible. Maybe that's the only thing I would say. Like, it makes moving around quickly really difficult, which is don't try to be a badass and stay somewhere so you can get a local feel. Because that will probably just mean that you're like sitting in a car for an hour and a half. Like, there's no point. It's your vacation. Do what the tourists do and just like stay in the places I mentioned. Right. And if it makes you feel any better, my family actually lives in San Isidro or has lived in Miraflores their whole life. So stop by. Yeah, exactly. Stop by. <laughs> it's my neighborhood. I'm inviting you to my place. Yeah, I know. No. It's nice to see that it's getting love. I will yeah. say that. After so many years of it being like, I don't even want to stop in Lima. <laughs> Boo. Boo. <laughs> so these notes are very colorful, like that I'm reading. More colorful than usual. And I'll read this one. Other places to see in Peru slash Inez's desperate attempt to get people to see other places in Peru, including the beaches up north, historic Arequipa, the jungle, other mountain treks, etc. <laughs> Would you care to elaborate? Well, I just think there's so much to see and do in my country. It's a shame that most people overlook it. And I actually don't fault people for doing that. I fault the Peruvian government for just like shoving Machu Picchu down our throats. Because I get doing that as an entryway, but then they just like fail to diversify. And I think they're slowly starting to do that now. But Peru is made up of three huge regions, the coast, the mountains, and the jungle. What more could you need? Seriously. Like, that basically covers everything. Every ecosystem. <laughs> Every ecosystem. It's so biologically diverse, and it has such a rich history, and it's a kind of place where, honestly, me being from Lima, like, it's very hard for me to understand what people in other regions, like, what their lives are like, because it's just that different. If you're a beach person, the surfing in the northern beaches of Peru are, like, known to be some of the best, and it's where a lot of international surfing competitions are done, so that's cool. I put Arequipa there, which is also, like, a big city in Peru with lots of colonial-preserved uh, architecture. Their food scene is really good, and it's a regional variant of Peruvian dishes. And it's also close to things like the Colca Canyon. Yes, where you can yeah. see condors. Yes, exactly. You know, another nature type stuff. There is Huacachina, which is a desert oasis. What? Where you can do things like sandboard. Ooh. And it's close to all the vineyards where Pisco are made, so you can also do Pisco tasting. They're trying to promote wine tasting, and I'm just like, guys, we do not do good wine. Do, we just don't. Do what you're strongest in. Yes, yeah. that's kind of what I want to say. Just like, forget about the wine and give people... Give people what they want, which is Visco. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Kathy mentioned Puno, which is somewhere I've never been, but it's also like a different area or a different experience of the Andes. There's Huaraz, which a lot of people also do for adventure sports, um, also in the Andes, but up north. The jungle. The jungle's a mystery to me. No one knows what the hell is going on there. <laughs> Not going to lie. <laughs> like, I don't even know. <laughs> yeah. It's just, why, why don't you go and see? I want to. You, no, I'm talking to our listeners. Oh, yes. yes listeners. <laughs> you too. Let's all go together. Um, but my mom, for example, was born in Iquitos, which is one of the only... One of the few cities in the world that you can only get to by plane or by river. Wow. Like, it's that isolated. Boomed at some point, I think, in the late 1800s due to, like, the caucho tree, which would be used to make rubber. So you can still see all these, like, lapidated mansions of, like, Ooh. rubber barons there. 
And again, you have access to like the Amazon jungle, so all of that nature stuff. Oh no, yeah, man. Where where are the Nazca lines? So that is in in Nazca, like, um, but that would be in the province of Ica. So if you go to Huacachina, the desert oasis, like, that's kind of the closest tourist hub to the Nazca lines. Which are how do you explain the Nazca lines? Oh man, you have to get in a plane yeah. and look down and see these mysterious lines that no in the in the sand. Yeah, that no one knows basically how they got there. Yeah, they're like these just huge drawings or like huge, yeah, drawings in the sand of different figures. Like one of the most well-known ones is like the monkey. And then there's a spaceman, which of course means everyone thinks the aliens did it. Yes, well, they did. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's a mystery as to how this like ancient Nazca civilization managed to do them. Um, That's another thing. Like if you're into archaeology, like, dude, the Incas were just the last in a long line of civilization. So you can see... Ruins from all sorts of royalties and kingdoms, like, everywhere in the country. Um, And just to reinforce your point about how multicultural Peru is and how there are different groups, my mother is very Catholic. (laughs) And everywhere I go, I buy her a little nativity set. I know. She's got so many cool ones. And so I was in the market in Cusco, and I was like, I need a nativity set. And they had, like, 50 and, like, in one stand, they're like, this is, like, the white Christian one. <laughs> this one, do you see the costume? These people live in the Coco Canyon. Aww. These people live up north by the beach. These people are, you know, Incan, the Incan nativity scene. And it was amazing because it was so detailed and you could tell how, like, each region was different by, like, the hats people were wearing and the clothes they were wearing. And, like, it went on and on. And finally, I was just, like, so overwhelmed by baby Jesus. I was like, I'll take that one. (laughs) (laughs) So I ended up getting my mom a nativity set of Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus from the Coco Canyon region. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) no, it really is. And, I mean, I don't tend to see Peru as a small country, because it actually isn't in comparison to, like, a lot of countries in the world. But I could see how someone from the States would think it was a small country since, like, the States is a continent, basically. Right. So the fact that it's basically, like, it packs so much in without spanning, like, an entire, you know, landmass is really cool. Yeah, I met some guy in Puno, Peru, like, um, Lan Airlines had some special where, like, you flew to Cusco for, like, $500, and then you could add interconnecting city flights for, like, $25 oh. per city. And he was going all over Peru and telling me all the stuff he was saying. And it made me so sad because I was like, I only have a week, yeah. and it takes me a week to do Machu Picchu, and then I have to go home. But, like, it... And I see beach pictures, like some of my more adventurous friends are posting their beach pictures from Lima Yeah, before they go and do Machu Picchu. I feel like there's so much to see there, like so much crazy different stuff. There is. And to be fair, like I haven't really explored it the way I should. And I think at first it was just like the youthful, you know, the the youthful arrogance of like, ugh, I want to see the world, you know. So I didn't like take advantage of it when I lived there. And now that I've like lived away from it for so long, what ends up happening is that the few times I go, it's to visit my family. And I feel guilty leaving my parents behind when I know they only get to see me a couple of times a year, if that. So I've made like the awful sin of not having explored my country enough. But now I'm getting to that point where I really want to. Yeah. Where I actually want to make the effort of seeing all these places I keep telling people about. But then they'll ask me like, great, what do you recommend? I'm like, well, I've never been. And then my like whole, what is it? Argument is completely like depleted, (laughs) you know? But I feel, (laughs) I feel like that's universal. Like, I don't feel like the French youth are like, oh, I'm going to go to Bordeaux this this time. And then we're going to go to the Loire Valley. I feel like that is like inherent of us as, as the youthful, as the youthful to like get out and do other stuff. Like now I'm like, I want to see all the national parks, which I could have been seeing this whole time. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, it's true. It's a very universal reaction though. It does make me remember this argument I once had with my dad. This was, I think, maybe when I was 20 or 21, and I was thinking of what I wanted to do after I graduated college, and I was looking up the Peace Corps because I thought it was open to everyone, seeing as it was a UN thing, but it was really only open to, U- to U.S. citizens and residents. And I remember telling my dad and being like, ugh, this freaking sucks, like... 
this blows because all I wanted to do is like travel and help people. And I remember him turning to me and being like, if you want to travel and help people, there's more than enough Peruvians that could use your help. And of course I did the whole like, you don't get it, dad. <laughs> Old man. <laughs> yeah. But he was right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that is something that I need to make up for. All right. <laughs> so yeah, that's Peru. Excellent. <laughs> I feel like there's so much more, though. Yeah. Like, we've we've only scratched the surface. Yes. And more of you are going. So if you're going, let us know. Like, tag your pictures with the hashtag XXWillTravel. Send us your thoughts. Yeah. Inez, um, Inez has a list for Lima. Yeah. That she sent to me that was... Would have been like I'm. I'm disappointed I didn't get to use it, but yeah, it's true. And you know, I looked it up because it was actually a list from my wedding website. And because my wedding took place so long ago, it's actually no longer there. No, yeah, like the link is gone. Well, so. it's time to start a new list. It is. Yeah. <laughs> so if you have questions or want to talk to us, we welcome your comments. You can find us on the web at xxwilltravel.com, on Instagram and Twitter at xxwilltravel. On Facebook, XX Will Travel. And big news, we have a Facebook group now. Woo! And if you look at it, it might not look like there are many people in it yet because there aren't. So, <laughs> but we'll start promoting it more soon, starting right now. So join in. We'll start being active. We'll start posting discussion questions and fun facts and other tips. Because we need people to talk to before we can start doing things. Yeah. <laughs> um, we also have a newsletter. You can sign up for that on our website. And that's it for now. Go to Peru or go somewhere. (laughs) Go forth and travel.